The funny thing about the sex industry is that you're never too young to get out. This is my conversation with Hannah Spanky. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today on Truth Tastes Funny is Hannah Spanky. Hannah is a licensed authentic tantric practitioner. She's a board-certified clinical sexologist and a relationship and life coach. And we're really happy to have her on the show today. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah. Well, start at the beginning, if you would. Start with your with the beginning of your journey, because it's always cool with Truth Tastes Funny, has a lot to do with the craziness of life, the unexpected twists and turns. And so I always like to kind of get a sense of where, you, where you're coming from and how you got from there to here. Yeah. So my background is definitely a little unorthodox, a little taboo. I actually started in the sex industry, like escorting, stripping, every, pretty much every single thing under that umbrella when I was 16 years old, stepped into that. And I was there for almost eight years in a number of different ways. And then about four years ago, I had a billion different revelations. It was kind of a domino effect, like all kinds of things started happening in my life that were really shifting things really quickly. And I started to wake up to a lot of realities about the lifestyle I was living that I had just kind of buried beneath the surface and, and just not had the same awareness of that I do now. And so started to wake up to some things and really had a, a, a new desire to change my life. And so I did. It was really a breakdown before the breakthrough sort of a thing. Like everything had to fall apart before it could come back together. And I spent the next couple of years just really deep soul searching, digging transformation type of stuff of why is my life like this? How did I get into this industry? How did I stay in this industry for so long? And what do I need to reorient within myself now in order to do what I want to do? And I always knew it was going to be something entrepreneurial. I always knew it was going to be something related to relationships and just human connection in general. I never knew how it was going to look, but everything just started like synchronicities left and right started to come together, introduced to the right people, the right experiences. And a couple years after I started my own personal healing journey out of that industry, I started my coaching business and then just continued to dig deeper into the education side of things through different certifications and licensing, et cetera. And yeah, here I am. <laughs> that's good. I mean, that's very succinct. Now, yes. <laughs> what were some of the revelations, though? This was actually a single moment where everything started to kind of become clear. I was in a long-term relationship at the time, three years, almost at the three-year mark. We broke up very shortly after the three-year mark. And this was my last relationship while I was still in that industry. And so, as you can imagine, you're a man. <laughs> it's it was a difficult dynamic to maintain, yeah. to have this personal romantic relationship while I was also seeing men for money on the side. You know, mm -hmm. it was a very, very challenging dynamic. 
And so it started to wear on the relationship more and more and more and more and more. And then um, alongside my lifestyle, I was also drinking a lot, like a very, very deep dive alcohol for a little while. Um, It got to the point where it was like, I would drink a 12 pack at lunch by myself and nobody knew it type of drinking. It wasn't that, that severe for very long. That was maybe the last few months of it. But I had all of the awareness that this is not okay. I need to change something. I need to stop it. But at the same time, my partner at the time, my boyfriend at the time, one of our biggest kind of connection points was going out and partying. And so mm. there was this deeper fear that like, oh, if I change this, how is this going to change everything else? Are we even going to be able to do anything together anymore? We were long distance at the time for the last year of the relationship, about six hours apart driving. So we'd see each other every few weekends. And it started to really change things. I decided I needed to stop. Everybody knew I needed to stop. I stopped officially. It was like an overnight decision, cold turkey, no more alcohol. And it was this massive emotional purge, probably three, four days of just like crying, 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 sitting on the couch, like I couldn't do anything else. And it was all these feelings coming to the surface that I had never felt before because they were so numbed with all of the drinking and the partying and stuff. And so- All of this massive purge was going on. And then I knew I needed to like grab onto something fast that could help support me on that journey. Because if I was just sitting alone at home by myself, I lived alone and just telling myself in my own mind, I don't drink anymore. Like I knew that that was kind of a fragile (laughs) support system, you know? Yeah. So I, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I don't know if you're familiar with the program 75 hard, Andy Frisella. I, decided to join 75 hard. So it's a free program. It's really a mindset program is truly what it is at the core, but a lot of it is fitness oriented and just like massive lifestyle changes. It's pretty hardcore for 75 days straight. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to fully commit to completely changing everything. I started it. And by the time I finished it, I literally was a new person. Like it was a very short amount of time, couple, two and a half months, not even three months. But so much changed my mindset, my just worldview, my body, my physique, my healthy like habits, everything. And there was a moment, a couple weeks after I finished it, I was still going on with the program for the most part. It was like a lifestyle shift. I was on the phone with this boyfriend, almost home from a walk. And he said like all kinds of drama around. He needed to tell me something, but couldn't, but didn't want to, but needed to, and didn't know how to. And he finally like spit it out and said, confessed, I guess, that he did not feel sexually interested in our relationship anymore or in me because of how much my body had changed throughout that program. I lost like 15 pounds. Like it wasn't a massive deal. And I got, you were still in the relationship at that. I was still in the relationship at that point. Yeah. I stopped drinking probably about six months before we officially broke up. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, well, I used to drink more than I drink now. Like I've gone through periods where when we, when I moved from, from Los Angeles to Iowa, it was like, there really was no reason to drink anymore after a while, because the drinking was very much around my, my work social life and my social, Mm -hmm. social life of friends. And that was the only time Mm -hmm. I really felt inclined to drink, but it was a lot, you know? And so when I, when I moved here, it was like there was just no reason to do it anymore. 
And now it's been like this balance of, okay, well, what do you do when you go back? Because culturally, when you when you go back on a business trip or you visit, it's like, first of all, now my tolerance is less. And then second of all, the what do you do when you're in the in the environment? It was so environmentally driven that, yeah. you know, I don't know. I It's still like a challenge. You still have to, your mindset can be very different from one place to another. So how did you, how did you even, who were you, other than your boyfriend at the time, who were you hanging out with and drinking with? Like during, yeah, the, during so, the time that you were, during those, that time that you really were. Yeah. So when it got really, really bad, when I was like getting drunk in the daytime by myself, that was because I was drinking with nobody. I was alone, literally. I'm from the Central Valley in California. That's where I was born and raised. And I did all of my drinking under the radar of like weekend warrior. Like I would party mm -hmm. with all my friends. It was very like intertwined with my social life. And then I moved to San Diego on my own. And so I was there by myself. All of my friends in San Diego at that time, I had a few new friends, were all business related, all kinds of like spirituality and health stuff and coaching and mindset and people that were not partying on the weekends. And so it turned into something that my habit didn't just disappear, you know, it just lost the social part. And so it really ramped up because then there was nothing around me to regulate. There was no closing time at the bar. There was no person right. to say, hey, we should go home. Like it was just really fast, really out of control with me, myself and I. And so, yeah. yeah. It was pretty bad because I was by myself and I realized like, all right, I'm the only person who can change this. And so yeah. I did, did this lifestyle transformation thing. It really transformed a lot. And then my boyfriend confessed he had lost sexual attraction because of my body changing, which is absolutely fucking crazy, by the way, because I was <laughs> so much hotter at the end of this program. <laughs> like <laughs> it was well, a positive change for sure. It only stands to reason. <laughs> like when I, when I cut it, I, I've, uh, aside from this move where I periodically cut, completely cut it out. And when I was living in LA, but also for like six months, completely cut it out. I immediately lost weight and it was easier to see results from working out, let's say, than when you're working yeah. out either after hanging out with your friends and drinking, <laughs> which, which I did with my friends too. We had one of my best friends and I had a trainer at one time where we would We'd go to the gym and work out with the trainer. And even if we were out doing our weekly buddies night out and drinking too much, we would still show up with the trainer. But I'm sure that the results were like, it was like <laughs> in our mind, we were, we were rationalizing. Oh, we yeah. still showed up. We showed up. It's like, you know, it's kind of a joke. Yeah, but totally. You, but, you, but anyway, so yeah, so it obviously had a transformative effect on you. You came out of this thing a new person, and then your boyfriend's like, "I'm not, in, I'm not into you anymore physically." Yep. As a result, but what did you think of that? What was your reaction to that? Yeah, so I was on a walk at the time. I was like a couple blocks away from my house, and it was like a shock immediately to my system. But mentally, trying to be all conscious about it, I was like. A, somehow congratulating him on like having the courage to tell me this <laughs> and yeah. then I walked in the door it was very backwards at the moment and then I walked in my front door and it was like my body in that moment then felt safe to like actually have the reaction that was real and I yeah. just started sobbing and crying and it was this massive sensation of like rejection and and all the stuff that I couldn't feel walking down the street in my very busy neighborhood and so I walked in the door 
completely fell apart. And it was just like the floodgates open to all of this awareness about the way I was working at the time, which was in the sex industry of how much my self-worth and how much I could find my own value was intertwined and wrapped up in such an unhealthy way in my body and in my sexuality. Yeah. And like, I felt that yeah. so deeply for the first time ever. Wow. But now when he knew that you were doing this program, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he knew you were, you'd stop drinking. Did he yep. express like before, like during that, at that point, did he express disappointment that you were going to stop drinking or like, what did he feel about that? Not explicitly. He did make it very clear that like, good for you. I'm not going to stop drinking, but good for you. Like it was this kind right. of like half-assed support, you know? Um, right. But we actually decided to do this 75 hard program together. Um, he's the one who came across it first. And then on day like two or something, it's a very hardcore program to I'm where sure. like, if you fuck up on day 60, you're supposed to start over from day one. And yeah. so like, there's no lenience. He fucked it up on day two or three and drank a beer. And just like, it was a casual thing to him. He wasn't taking it very seriously. Right. And so right. I was kind of then motivated from spite. I would say it was like, Oh, okay. Are you going to restart tomorrow? And he was like, no, I'll restart sometime in the future. And I was so mad. I was so mad because it was supposed to be this thing we were doing together. There was a lot of stuff in the relationship that I just didn't want to acknowledge of why it wasn't working. And so like, yeah. this was one more disconnect, one more example of it, you know, me wanting more than he was wanting. And so he fell off and I was like, I'm going to show him like, I'm going to yeah. do this. <laughs> and then it was just like, no, to the grindstone, I did it. And I reaped all the benefits, but it, it ultimately was one more thing that it, it was a positive in the long run, but it, it created yeah. more and more of a divide in the relationship. There is no more divisive element in a romantic partnership than one person really like making a huge life change and the other person not. Like there's like, I, that's yeah. why I asked that question. Like I get resentful of my wife because she burns more calories faster than, than I do. <laughs> because rel she's young, she's younger than I am. And relative to, to what I have to do, it's like, I, I can't even burn that many calories in a, in a workout. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, so, but that, or that, and that causes like some kind of, you know, mock resentment, but you know what I mean? Right. Like we're so sensitive to what the other person is doing and perceiving that as like, uh, you know, an affront somehow to, to our lifestyle, mm -hmm. a rejection of our right. lifestyle. But he also had, he also wasn't thrilled about the sex work either, right? Or Right, yes. And so after I had this massive like breakdown, then I started to have more awareness around like, why was I in this relationship still after so long of him being disapproving of me? me constantly experiencing this like little micro rejections where he was like yeah. accepting it because we were together still, but not really. And so I started to realize, and then as I dove into my own development and work and everything that I do with couples now, and just was like eating information up everywhere I could get, I started to realize like, I am a match for this relationship on some level. Like if, if I wasn't, I wouldn't be in it. And so mm -hmm. I realized that he was reflecting back to me the same lack of approval that I had for myself at that time. And so it was the mirror that it always is. And 
once I really came to and realized that, then it just continued to go in separate directions. We started growing farther and farther apart. We were already living apart. And so it wasn't very long after that whole experience that we separated, maybe a month or two. Yeah. Okay. And then, so what was the next revelation, you know, or the next decision at that point? Yeah. So the real inner work for me of like everything that changed, which has been literally everything over the last handful of years, everything that changed, I would say the hardest thing was for me to like untangle my self-worth from my body uh, when it came to money. And so I was charged, I could charge a thousand dollars for an hour of my time with a dude in a hotel room, but charging somebody a thousand dollars for months of my like mind and soul and effort and, and all the support I could offer and all the wisdom and all the stuff for, you know, them to change their lives for the better, which now I charge much more than that. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was impossible. And I started to realize like, what the hell, what is this disconnect? Like, why can I accept money for these parts of myself? And I can't accept money for these parts of myself that are absolutely more valuable. And so it, that was a big paradigm shift that had to happen mentally, emotionally, spiritually, like on all levels, there was a lot of unlearning and relearning that I had to go through. And that was my biggest focus. Probably that whole year we broke up in, in the early part of 2019. And then the rest of the year was just dedicated to me, like, caterpillar to the butterfly kind of a situation like melting so that I could turn into something else. And it was really hard. It was an uphill battle feeling for a long time with my business of like, why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? As an entrepreneur, I know you can maybe relate to times like that when you're trying something new, you've never done it before. And it's like, you feel like you're walking into the wall. And then all of a sudden, things click and things happen and everything starts moving forward. And it feels like it happened overnight, you know, and so right. That or was it kind doesn't of the feel big like shift. it happened overnight. It, it, <laughs> right. It, happen, it actually can. Well, yeah, I, get, I totally get what you're saying because it can be. Yeah. A, you can pinpoint a moment where it, it started to click, but it just wasn't overnight. It was, you know, right. all of this work. So why was it? I mean, if I can add, why was, why was it that you couldn't put the right value on your, on your other skills and things that you could offer? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, definitely the last almost decade of my life spent being validated by my physical attributes only, you know, like somebody was willing to pay me hundreds or thousands of dollars for access to my physical body. And it had nothing to do with my mindset, had nothing to do with my wisdom, had nothing to do with my like emotional intelligence. It was all about, even though it did, it was all about physical access, you know? And so I had just conditioned myself by being in that industry and in that world to really see myself that way. And that was like, I had wrongly learned and internalized that that was where my value lived. And if we want to get a little macro on it, like just societally growing up in the US, you know, you drive down the street, unless you're in Vegas, basically, you see you might see signs of naked men on billboards, but pretty much outside of that kind of a city, It's women everywhere. And so it's like the prettiest girls on TV are in the bras and underwear. And there's just so much conditioning towards women, I would say, from the youngest age that like if you are the one that somebody wants to buy in some form or another, like you win, you know. And so there was just a, a lot of unhealthy conditioning around my body being the thing to lead with. And unlearning that took 
took some effort. And what about in when you were younger in school or at home? Like, what were where did the values fall there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my parents split apart when I was five. My mom was struggling with a very rather severe drug problems and and other things that went with that. And so she left and I was raised by my dad, my sister and I, by my dad for about the next eight years or so. So the majority of my younger childhood was spent with just him alone. And there's no blame in any of this. Like I fully believe that everybody's doing the best they can with what they have at the time, especially parents. But there was some things that he was not equipped for, you know, with a rebellious teenage daughter and all the things that come with that. And so Yeah, there was a single moment. I remember he sat me down. I was nine or 10 years old. And I can see now that he was trying to like warn me of like boys ulterior motives and things Mm -hmm. like that. But the framing was not helpful. He said almost word for word that girls or women will trade sex for love and men will fake love for sex. And so I can see it now as like he was trying to tell me like, you know, don't go have sex with people because you need to make sure that you're in love or something along the lines of that. But it kind of, I think just was one more thing that reinforced that whole seed that like, if I have something to offer in that way, maybe that's how I can get a guy's attention. And then that really turned into a very promiscuous high school set of years. And then that kind of supported me being comfortable in the sex industry, I would say. Yeah, I think that I want to take this moment to kind of underscore that as a parent and as someone who was a, at some at one point a kid, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I just I just with the perspective now, I just feel like it is it is so, so challenging to communicate to your kids what you want them to know and to do the right thing all the time and have all the messages get through. It's like it years ago, I might look at, at parents and say, oh, you did a terrible job of raising your child. I wouldn't say it, but I mean, I'm sure that there was judgment in, in my head, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that, oh, well, they just didn't raise their children right. That child just grew up with all of these different things because they, the, the parents screwed up. And I realize now that while there are there are better ways and worse ways to do things, it's just really, really hard. It's just super mm-hmm. hard. And so if you want to be a good parent, you just are going to have to work harder like than mm-hmm. you thought or work. Because I've been a parent now for 31 years so and I have kids in different age ranges. And so I, I – I'm pretty confident that I am better at a lot of the parenting things now, even with the older kids, than I than I uh-huh. was when they were first born because I was so young and I was not as well equipped or developed, you know, emotionally. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think there's so many things that we have to go through and learn about ourselves before we should really have kids or at least examine our baggage and say, okay, how many bags do I have? How many bags am I bringing with me on this trip? You know, because by the time you become a, a parent, it would be better if you just had a carry on at a personal item. I think it would, right. be, it would be, that's kind of ideal, you know? Yeah. So you also do, so you also are interested in astrology and human design, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about your, your experiences there? Yeah. So 
they have both, both of those different modalities have just become really convenient tools. I would say very Mm -hmm. helpful tools for me. It's been just years and years and years of like personal hobbyist type of learning. Like moments it's kind of obsessive and then I'll put it down for a month or two and then I come back. And then I started feeling confident enough with what I knew to start using it with my clients. And my intention was like, if I can help this person in front of me understand themselves more then they're going to feel more empowered and more validated to be themselves. And naturally they're going to align more with their own authentic happiness, their own desires, their own things. And all of the peeling away of the conditioning that we all have from our parents or societies, whatever, it's going to be easier to kind of let those things go that are unhelpful when they can feel validated and empowered that, Oh, I am supposed to be this way. I am sensitive in this way for this reason. I am really driven in my career for this reason. I'm not like, it can start to unshame the things that sometimes we get told. Like we're very homogenized. It's like you you go to school, you go to college, you get a job, you do this thing. And if you don't fit in one of these boxes, then we start to internalize that something's wrong with us or there's something off or, you know, et cetera. And so I've used these tools and I use them a lot. I really love them to just help my clients understand that they are by design a certain way and not to tell them this is how you are. So now you have to be like this because what actually ends up happening in my experience is they start to like, remember, Oh, I've always wanted to do things that way. I've always had the tendency to see things that way or act this way in that situation. And it's like this very unique and like rewarding for me to watch like remembrance of who they are at the core that allows them to just be empowered in, in any of the transformational work that they're doing with me at the time. That's very cool. I mean, I got, I dabbled in the human design thing a little bit more from a professional point of view of trying to understand why I was repeating certain things in business that mm-hmm. would not, you know, address the issues that were that were lacking in the structure in the infrastructure of a business. And I kept trying mm-hmm. to figure it out. And it was someone was who's kind of into all this stuff was saying, well, I think you don't understand which role you play. Like you don't understand your human design. And so mm-hmm. you're trying to shoehorn yourself into roles that that don't fit. You should stay in your lane and don't expect this other person to be that that person because their design is not that either. And, you know, and she was really insightful. And I was like, ah, and one of the things she said was, oh, you're a reactor. You're a reactor. And that really stuck with me, like, because creatively, I do react. I could create original things like screenplays and books and things like that. But but that doesn't mean you're not reacting. It just means you're taking the initiative. But you can react to, like, that's where the whole you know, my whole kind of business model came from now is that I react to clients, you know, and, and, and so I just even in touching this very surface of human design, I thought was really fascinating. What about the Buddhist Tantra? Yeah. So the last two and a half years now, officially coming on the two and a half year mark, I've been studying, well, authentic Tantra was my introduction to it, which is a Western modality. It's a created modality. But the roots of it is a lineage-based, like unbroken teacher to student, 1,200-year-old tradition of Tibetan Buddhist Tantra. And so kind of the weaving of this like ancient wisdom with the authentic Tantra, like all the pieces that go into it, including like nonviolent communication, part, different parts of Taoism, polyvagal theory with all the nervous system stuff around trauma and 
a lot of different components to it mixed with the roots of this Tibetan Buddhist lineage. It's just been incredibly transformational for my own personal life, like in my own healing process. And it's now something that I'm licensed in. It's, it's recognized like in, by the government under the same occupational health codes as like alternative medicine, like Chinese medicine or acupuncture or something like that. And so it's really cool that it is, it has that status now because it's starting to gain more, more acceptance, I would say like in the, in the general pop culture, you know, um, Mm -hmm. as something that, oh, maybe I can do this. And really the root of it for me, the biggest thing that is so important about all of those teachings is that everything we need, we have in our body. We are so conditioned to live from our minds. And that's like what human design is all about. The separation, the difference between what your mind is going to tell you all day long and what your body is designed to be. And so it's like starting to align those things because we can't get out with with one or the other. We need both and, and they need to be integrated. But like we need to have an understanding of what their roles are. One of them is, is like our true guide. And the way I see it, our body is that. And our mind is like the narrator for us to understand what's going on. But it's not really here to make our decisions. Our body is, mm-hmm. is, is a, such a deep, like cosmic tool of wisdom. And with all of the Tibetan Buddhism and, and teachings that I've been studying for the last couple of years, I feel really, really grateful to have all of this knowledge now and and i've been using it quite a bit with my clients to help them reconnect to their bodies and it's amazing like women in their 20s and men in their 60s and everybody in between are like having these massive breakthroughs and massive emotional healing and releases and all these things from decades and decades and decades of feeling disconnected and now they're plugging back into themselves and just so much can change and they're just yeah it's really really amazing Let's also touch on the status. You know, you mentioned it's good that that it's that 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 it's getting this status, and but mm-hmm. I think that the hangups and the and the you know the alien kind of nature of sex and talking about sex and coming in like you can walk into a doctor's office and I, I talk about this with mental health also. You you walk into a doctor's office and you have no problem saying I stubbed my toe, my toe really hurts, but you won't say. You know, my I, I feel really bad about myself right now, and I'm I'm mm-hmm. feeling despondent. Like that, like those mm-hmm. two things are not viewed. One is clinical and physical and superficial and topical, if you will, and the other one is embarrassing and shameful and compromising. Yeah, you know, in our in our mind, and so the same with with sex. Most people mm-hmm. in our culture are not comfortable with their own sexuality or constantly at odds in some way. And it doesn't even like, I like if I go back into my childhood and I was brought up in a religious atmosphere, but it, but you know, like I, I don't, I don't recall it being made to feel shameful, but I'm sure there was something about it being mm-hmm. at least very, very personal to the point where it's like super personal. Like, it's unipersonal. Like there's not, like, it's just, yeah, there's not anybody <laughs> right. going to know about it, which would be great if it were strictly a solitary and get, you know, undertaking. Right. But if it's going to ever be shared <laughs> with anybody else, it can't really just be me that knows anything about it, about how I feel yeah. about it. So how do you, how, like, how do you address that when, how, when people come to you with, with this stuff? 
Yeah. So this is where I really see the gift in my background being so like taboo and, and left field and like it's not most people's experience of life, you know? And so it it kind of like it's like I don't know, the the image I have in my mind right now is like the comedian like drinking a beer before they go on stage. Like people just knowing a little bit about my background somehow yeah. takes the edge off. You know, they're like, oh, maybe I can say this to her and I wouldn't say it to somebody else. And so that kind of openness that people just typically have with me in general, paired with my actual training and the clinical side of things and all of that, it allows them to, I think, feel seen a lot of times for the very first time in that department, whether it's something emotionally they're struggling with. A big one that so many women, especially, but men too, is just getting stuck in their head when they're having sex, like just something as simple as that, not feeling like they can be present or something that's on the more physical side of things, a dysfunction of some sort, erectile dysfunction, not feeling like they can climax with a partner, et cetera. All of those types of things, to me, it's like the the lube for that kind of conversation is really just them feeling seen and not sensing a single ounce of shame coming from me or judgment coming from me that allows them to like, I think there's a lot of healing just in that experience alone. Because for most of my clients, at least, it's the first time they're experiencing that. You know, because even in a household, and I have a lot of clients who have religious backgrounds, even in a household where no one's sitting you down and is like, this is dirty, this is bad, it can still totally be internalized as that in the grand scheme of things because it is so private, because it's so hush-hush. Like you're saying, it's like when you're 13 years old and you start getting random boners in class and you know you can't tell your dad, you know you can't tell your mom, and it's like this totally isolating, alienating experience that's an internalized experience of shame, you know, of like, I must be weird. I must be the only one going through this. There's nobody I can talk to about this. What's wrong with my body. And so it it plants seeds really, really young. And then unfortunately for most people, our first experience or our first like university of relationships and sex and connection is the household we grew up in. And so then we're all adults walking around with this like seven-year-old knowledge (laughs) and (laughs) trying yeah. to plug each other into into things and it just like is it can flop you know so yeah it's dysfunctional yeah it's 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 like you know it also explains why why that whatever they want to call it sophomoric humor is what what it gets called a lot you know but mm-hmm. i'm i i'm also a comedian and so i do you know, I, I have analyzed that same kind of stuff. Like, what kind of humor do you want to do, right? What kind of, how do you, and and how you approach sex, it's easy in stand-up because you're putting everything through the filter of comedy. And that's what Truth Tastes Funny does too. What the show does is it puts, it's, that's how we digest the truth. That's how we deal with it. Do you find that humor plays a role in your counseling and in therapy and things like that? Sometimes yes, but it's absolutely like unintentional. It's just the way that I'll say things sometimes. It kind of makes them laugh or or I'll laugh when I say it and then it and then it, it really just like it's more lube for the conversation, you know? Like when I'm teaching a woman, for example, about her actual anatomy, because that's something we do not understand as a collective, and then she thinks she's broken, her husband thinks that he's broken because he can't please her and all these different disconnections and dysfunctions just because there's a lack of awareness. And so everyone knows that a penis goes up, you know, everyone knows that. And so not everyone knows that there is an equivalent experience of that in female genitalia. And like describing that to somebody 
a lot of times it just came out of my mouth one day and now I say it a lot is like, I'll use the term lady boner. And sometimes that makes people laugh when I'm talking to them about their lady boner and the experience of getting one, they're like giggling, you know? And so it just, it, it takes the edge off of the whole thing for sure. Is there like a movement or an objective that you have that's more macro, let's say, than, than just working one-on-one with, with clients to help them? Is there a bigger goal? Yes, essentially that kind of tying it back into the human design and the really all of it pulls into this one point for me, like in, in different ways, like I glean things from all of these different modalities is that we need to be connected to our body, like mind, body, spirit, all things need to be online equally. And just like in football movies or football sayings, like the team is only as strong as its weakest link. The same exact thing is true for us guys in business that are all about mindset, but they're not connected to their spirituality or people who are meditating on a mountain for 20 hours a day, but they're not connected to how they're going to make money. You know, like all kinds of different mismatches, all of them are equally important. And to me, my perspective is that all of it can be kind of united when we really, really deeply connect with our body, which is where anything that we experience as trauma or I don't like using the word trauma necessarily to describe this, but like we have cellular memory about everything, whether it was a positive experience or a negative one, typically the negative ones, the quote unquote traumas are what gets really stuck and starts to affect us. But our positive experiences are with us too. And so when we can start to connect to ourselves, like on the deepest level to our cellular memory, like deeply connected to ourselves through our sexuality, through the way we eat, through the way we think, through how we do things, like just on every level equally tended to, we can start to really unlock the wisdom that lives in all of us and that we feel like we don't have when we're only living from one of those places. Well, it sounds like, you know, your approach is like a whole life approach to coaching and people may come in through sexuality or relationship issues but really, I, ideally, targeting everything that might be mismatched or off or, you know, not addressed. And it makes sense. It's like, you know, so w- the other thing we have to get used to is that we're not we, – there is no such thing as perfect. You know, you could say everybody's perfect the way they are or the way they're born, but that's not, that's not what I mean. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, there is no like, oh, I only have one thing. It's this one hang up about, you know – getting un, undressed in, in front of anybody. You know, it's just that one thing. And every, everything else is perfect. You know, my, my whole approach right. to, to, to work and relationships, everything's fine. I just I have this one thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't think that anybody has that one thing. <laughs> they may have one yep. doorway into that whole. So now, are you pretty fearless about diving into the, the psyche and hangups and mismatches of a person. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think just, just even the tiniest bit of knowledge about my background allows people to feel a little more comfortable, like out the gate talking about things that maybe they've never talked about before childhood experiences, things that they've been through in, you know, a number of different areas, but yes. And I like to tend to both because we have a mind, we can't turn it off, like I said, and we have a body, you know, and so I have a deep understanding of trauma and how to work with it from a somatic approach, like getting it out of our bodies, but we still have the mental, like explicit memory, 
you know, we have to deal with the implicit memory of the things we go through and the explicit memory of it. And so the balance of both of those, letting people really dive into the story of things as well as stopping them when they're too much in the story and digging into the body, like, okay, let's get it out now. And yeah, I really do go back and forth with all of it. And let's end with this. In addition to the, you know, you mentioned the, that, that a lot of people don't get that, you know, just as a man has arousal and a, and a you know, erection, that a woman has a, a counterpart to that. Is there another, like, really common mis, misconception or misperception about human sexuality that, that in society we just aren't seeming to get? Yeah, I would say there's like, I think that these are universal, but in our culture, I think some are more common for men, some are more common for women, you know, just because we're, we're societally conditioned a little differently. Like boys aren't supposed to cry and girls aren't supposed to do different things, you know. And so something that I really see as a major common thing with men that I work with is just a complete lack of awareness or disconnection that their emotional experience has anything to do with their sexual experience. And so I've had many clients come to me after like not being able to get hard or not being able to finish or something like that with a partner that they weren't into, that <laughs> they like had no emotional interest in or, or they didn't really like them or they were thinking about their ex or whatever. And they think that there's something sexually wrong with them. Like they're coming to me for a dysfunction and that's not the case at all. It's like, no, your your heart was somewhere else. Like there's an emotional piece that needs to be just made aware of, I think, for a lot of people. And then on the women's side of things, thinking, again, thinking that it's a sexual dysfunction when really it's just a lack of awareness a lot of the time, that her arousal process takes longer and looks different than his. And so when they're not matching up on the same exact time, oh, we didn't come together like in the movies, then it's like she must be the thing that's that's the issue. She just doesn't like sex that much. That is a major thing that I hear from couples, and it's not true. But it's like if you went to the diner together all the time and one partner got their dream meal every single time and the other partner got some bullshit every single time, like <laughs> they'd probably be less interested in going. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, those are the big ones that come up. That's great. That's funny. <laughs> if you went to the diner every time. Yeah. It's a dream meal versus bullshit. You could pretty much, yeah. you know, or horseshit. <laughs> Or whatever tastes like <laughs> shit, or just the same, just nothing, really, just like yeah. a meal. You know, there is yeah. a difference between a really satisfying meal and just eating, mm -hmm. or just joining someone for dinner because they're having dinner, you know? Right, yes. So, actually, the last <laughs> thing was, because we had talked a lot about your your life at the time that you that you had all of this kind of watershed moment and everything. So now where you're at now, do, mm -hmm. do you, it sounds like it, but if, in your own words, how do you compare the two in terms of your fulfillment, your own fulfillment? Mm. Yeah, completely night and day. And I really had this like massive realization. Somebody asked me a question on a, on a podcast a few weeks ago about like, if there was anything from that like past life that I missed, anything from the sex industry that I missed, and the thing that just like spit out of my mouth without thinking about it is that like, there's not a dollar amount in the world that could pay me to do what I did. And so mm. it's like, you could offer me a million dollars to have sex with Joe Blow and I wouldn't take it. And I feel so confident in that now. And that just, I think speaks volumes to how I value myself now and my own ability to generate the things I desire and 
what I want versus any sort of dependency on something outside of myself to give me that fulfillment. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.